0: Before we start today's episode, I want to invite you to share your thoughts on giving ventures with me and my team. Would you take three minutes to do our short listener survey at DonorsTrust.org slash podcast survey? Our goal is to help you grow your giving, and your feedback is key to meeting that goal. Again, visit DonorsTrust.org slash podcast survey. I really appreciate your input. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. We hit on the name Giving Ventures for this podcast because that word venture implies active work. The best giving isn't passive. Smart, intentional giving, which frankly is how I would define philanthropy means understanding your own purpose and motivation for being charitable as much as it requires understanding the causes you wish to support. Now, many of you listening have been giving for years, and in talking to some of you, you also know there is always room to grow and to adapt in your giving. But where do you start? What are the right questions to ask? I am so pleased today to have with me Gideon Bernstein, author of a terrific book that speaks to those questions and so many more, His book, simply titled Giving, offers two things necessary for making a giving plan, inspiration and a roadmap. He reminds donors that no gift is too small, nor is there really a wrong way to approach it. Giving is a personal act, and every giver will approach his or her giving differently. This book was recommended to me by a donor we work with at Donors Trust, and will be one I share with others grappling with ways to bring life to their giving. So let's jump in with Gideon Bernstein. In addition to authoring this book, Giving, Gideon is a chartered financial analyst and a trusted financial advisor with his firm, Leisure Capital Management, in Orange County, California. He earned the charter advisor and philanthropy designation and is current chairman of the Jewish Community Foundation in Orange County, uh, so has plenty of real-world credentials and background in the philanthropic world. Gideon, I am delighted to get to talk to you today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And so you start your book with a pretty bold claim that the secret to happiness is giving. So could you elaborate on that? that that's big.
1: Thanks, Peter. I, I think that um, I usually start off presentations that I've got a big secret that I want to share with the audience. And I'll lead into it, like the secret to happiness is, it's, it's right here for everybody. And that secret is giving. And believe it or not, If you haven't tried it before, you just do something small or something big to help somebody else out, and you'll see what that after effect is. It'll put a smile on your face. Um, But there's research that has been done that shows that giving actually does have an endorphin effect. There is a uh, afterglow that stimulates part of the brain that is the pleasure center that is coming from um, having some social connection and making an impact on other people's lives. So it's not just something that I'm making up.
0: Also, it has all kinds of other benefits, right? Even Arthur Brooks and some other research showed you can make more money if you're a giver. I mean, it's just the downstream effects are pretty impressive. So you and your family went through something that no family should ever have to go through uh, in suffering the the death, the murder of your son, Blaze, back in 2018, uh, impressively, and kind of going back to that first question, you seem to have come through that tragedy with an even stronger commitment and stronger passion uh, in philanthropy and in giving. Can you talk to us, if you will, about how that awful event changed the way you look at giving?
1: Sure. Um, you know, we we were no strangers to philanthropy and charitable giving before Blaze's murder. Um, it really was just uh, um, something that I hope that Nobody has to go through in their life of the tragedy of losing one of their children and then um, compounding that with it just being just a really awful loss for us and and our son. So what it did from the get-go after our son's death was catapult us into the public eye. And uh, we had a tremendous group of friends in our community that were helping to guide us along and whisper in our ear on ways that we could have an impact and do something that would be allowing us in, I think, uh, um, the words that I think Cheryl Sandboard used in, in her book, book Option B, a, w- a way for us to find a co-destiny of being able to carry on Blaze's spirit with us after, after his death. And that, w- and that way that was created that our friends helped us to really move forward philanthropically was this movement that we called Blaze It Forward, so we used Blaze's name, like paying it forward, and offered it as an opportunity to help people to find ways to give back to their communities in Blaze's name and Blaze's memory. And um, rather than just paying it forward, it was really encouraging others to do um, not random acts of kindness, but intentional acts of kindness, uh, You know, either physical or monetary. Uh, and so my wife and I really just started off on a path of... Finding other ways to give back to the community and to establish ways to really keep Blazes' memory and existence alive in perpetuity.
0: How has that changed over time?
1: Well, it's 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 a great question. I think at the beginning um, we had a, a memorial fund that was funded. Uh, by hundreds of people who wanted to help us to uh, find ways to philanthropically um, memorialize Blaze's existence and create endowment funds and all types of uh, tools, donor-advised funds, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. So, um, So one way that we did at the beginning was setting up a few endowments that were going to support areas that Blaze was interested in or involved in. One of them was back at the University of Pennsylvania where he was going to school. He was involved with uh, the Kelly Writers House and uh, he was a blooming writer and uh, was about to be uh, the managing editor for their foodie magazine called Pen Appetit. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we got involved with, uh, with University of Pennsylvania and we established an endowment that would help to support students in the summertime with scholarships for them to do um, internships that were paid. From this endowment. Um, There were others that were created over that time. And um, as time has evolved, it's been almost five years since we lost Blaze. I think that now it's turned into more of us finding ways to inspire and motivate others to do things for uh, the good of their family or for the memory of somebody that they've lost. And so a lot of the public speaking and efforts that we go out and do uh, in our son's memory is really motivating audiences and individuals to do more charitable giving and telling them why they should be doing it.
0: I think it's really interesting how it can evolve over yeah. time. I mean, that's really true for all giving, any philanthropist. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it may be a struggle that a lot of people have of feeling like it may change and that once they they start giving, they should lock themselves in. How do we you talk about this some in the book. So so give us some cliff notes here how do we go about determining what kind of philanthropist we are? I mean, what is the formula or or just some suggestions for donors who are really trying to get better focused on their giving, get a
1: handle on it? The way that I put the book together, it was designed really to be a handbook to happiness. Uh, So in handbooks, you have worksheets and you have sections that you work through. And so the way that we structured the entire book was that there would be five sections. Each section would help you to discover more and more about what your giving purpose is, what your values are, what kind of vision that you want to develop with regards to your giving. Um, My suggestion for those that are just, you could say, charitably curious or have never done it before and are really afraid of giving is to start really on a grassroots level and do something really simple. So you start from the grassroots level where it's like you, you know, are giving money to a charity that solicits you by mail or you are in Starbucks and you decide that you want to pay for the person's coffee in front of you or behind you because they don't have enough money or they ran, you know, they just, you know, don't have enough change to be able to pay it. Like discovering that small step is really the, uh, I would say the, the, the small door that lets you into a very big universe of giving opportunities.
0: I'm going to divert a little bit to to a specific topic, and then I want to get big picture again. But you talk a little bit about anonymous giving, private giving in the book. Uh, this is something that that we in the donor trust world hear a lot, uh, in the donor advised fund world in general, hear a lot about ad- anonymous giving. And there's an, maybe you've seen it too, kind of an uptick in attacks on people who utilize donor advised funds or other means to to give privately and As you know, as I know, there's a lot of different reasons people do give anonymously. And you offer some really great examples of the power of it in the book. What do you think the place of of
1: anonymous giving, of private giving, is in the
0: world of philanthropy?
1: There's a few different dimensions to that. There's definitely the spiritual component of it from, you know, there's many religions that say that anonymous giving is the highest level of giving because it's the most altruistic like you're not doing it for recognition. You're not doing it for anything aside from just trying to make um, the uh, greater good for the world and regardless of which organization that you're giving. So uh, I think, you know, in the Jewish religion, I think uh, one of the earliest um, philosophers was um, Maimonides, uh, who had said that there's different eight, eight different levels of giving that you could have. and And the anonymous giving is like the highest level is when you've kind of like gotten close, the closest to God. So that's, that's one element or one uh, way of looking at it. Um, but when you come to some of the more technical reasons of why people would want to give anonymously, I think that there's a lot of philanthropists that are out there that are um, are reluctant to put their names out there when they're giving because they just don't want to uh, continuously be solicited by others. And so Uh, One way of doing that is through organizations that offer donor-advised funds, much the way that Donors Trust does. You can create a donor-advised fund, and you don't have to say that it's coming from you. It's coming from Donors Trust when you're making the gift out of your donor-advised fund. And so it allows you to be anonymous, to be able to do your giving with what you want to do without having any pressure from outside solicitation. So those are two different elements of it, one from more of a spiritual perspective and one... More from a technical. Yeah, I think it's a it's a more
0: complex, complicated issue than some people. I think give a, give it its due, and I think some people don't even think about it at all. Right? They just say, "Well, aren't we supposed to put our name on it?" So they just do it and don't even almost know that that's an option. Uh, yeah, that they can that they can do it anonymously. So you know the the real meat of your book, the part that I think really stands out and makes it really valuable is the section where you talk about strategies for giving and you go through the various tools, you talk about the structures, you talk about the assets, the difference in the different assets that people can use and really spell it all out. You know, by day you're a financial advisor working with people to think about their total financial picture uh, and really leverage that wealth. When it comes to philanthropy, as you're working with some of those clients, what are some of the biggest surprises or biggest aha moments that, that, you have in those conversations when you 're talking to them about these various strategies and assets and tools uh,
1: what are, what are people overlooking when it comes to how they can be doing their giving? Well, let me tell you a story because this is really part of the, one of the most exciting parts of my job is helping clients to discover the opportunities that they have to be philanthropists, and I you know a lot of people are worried about giving from the perspective like, oh my God, if I give all my money away, or if I give some of it away, there's not going to be any left for my kids. So the, I, I sat down with some clients and we started talking about their assets and, and, and what, their, what their intentions were for their investments. But I led into talking about philanthropy because um, you know I knew that they had enough resources that they could take care of their three kids and they could make philanthropy their fourth kid. Like, for them, that made a lot of sense when I introduced it from the perspective of, like, you don't have to give it all away. But, you know, what if you imagine that all of your favorite, favorite, favorite charitable organizations were going to become one of your children uh, upon your death or even now? Like, you start giving them money like you give to your kids. And th- that's when you get the aha moment is when they realize that they can have, like, charitable causes become another entity, another child. Another vessel for giving and making the world the world a better place. So the conversations usually go into talking about how easy it is to be a philanthropist and how easy it is to really play in the big pool. You don't have to be Bill Gates or Warren Buffett to be a philanthropist anymore. You can have a your own private donor advised fund, which which in effect is just like any um, uh, charitable entity, uh, quasi private foundation. And you get a lot of benefits from creating the donor device fund for very little cost, and you can donate appreciated stock to it every year, and you get the tax write-off, and it makes it super easy for you to be able to do your charitable giving in the future. So once you go through those that checklist and explain those things in the conversation to clients, uh, it and they they are working with their trusted advisor, they realize that this is something that's a new door that they can open for. Something that's going to really broaden their horizons for their lives.
0: I think it's really well put. This this idea of charitable children is something that my colleague Stephanie Lips and I talk about a lot. And I like the way you framed it, particularly in contrasting again against the regular children, letting them know that it's not an all for nothing game. I think that's as you think about the long term. I think that's a big deal. Let's, let's talk about kind of the short term or the closer giving. One of the objections I get, or frustrations maybe is people say there's so many things i care about uh i don't want to give too little to uh, a bunch of organizations because you know i'm not making any difference but i don't know who to focus my giving on do you have a strategy for that do you advise people to spread then start small and then consolidate or to start you know big gifts to a single organization and maybe go out from there how do you recommend people do you think about that
1: Well, each individual's decisions are going to be different. My belief is that if you start small and you're working with different organizations, that your favorites, the ones that are really going to be meaningful to you, are going to come to you in in two different ways. One is your involvement and what resonates with you. And the other part is the strength of the organizations that you're working with and their stewardship and how they actually say thank you for the gifts that you get. And and a lot of research has so, shown that organizations that really focus on their donors, that do the proper stewardship and uh, continue to update their donors on how their dollars have impacted their organizations are the ones that are really getting the repeat gifts or the increased gifts from those donors. So. From the donor perspective, I think it's important for them to start small to see really which organizations are, are effective in executing on what they say they're going to be doing and then also how they are able to really uh, be able to say thank you and steward them.
0: I, I, I tend to agree with you, especially because one thing we hear, maybe you hear this too, is people look at some of the bigger groups out there and feel their gifts are just a drop in the bucket. They get lost in it, yeah. uh, but they care about those groups and they want to make be in there. Um, but then they want to have leverage too. And I think your, your approach of kind of trying a bunch of different things allows them to find those potentially smaller organizations where they can have more leverage in the future.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I, I'm on the board for a private family foundation and, and since it was funded and we started to give and grant money away every year, we we've looked at it from the same perspective of where we're giving our money to, um, different organizations the ones that we feel like our dollars are having a bigger impact are the ones that are getting bigger dollars from us. So uh, I think the individual giver will probably go in that direction as they get more comfortable with the organizations and what they're doing.
0: And it kind of, kind of feeds into a line that jumped out at me from the book um, that, you know, I think some people might even think it's controversial. I think you're probably right. Is You say, quote, strive to give without judgment and without the fear that you're giving wrong no giving can do harm. Uh, you want to elaborate on that? That, I mean, can really no giving do harm? Can we make mistakes in our giving? Is our mistakes okay?
1: I think that in giving, it's the best place for you to take risks. Um, there is a sermon that I listened to one time that resonated with me, you know, that, um, I think that all of us walk around judging all day long. You walk by a homeless person or somebody that's got their hand out and they're asking for money. And the first thing that would always go through my mind is like, oh, he's going to go use it for drugs or he's going to go drink it away. Like, why should I give him money? But what if you took that leap of faith uh, and you basically erased that from your whole judgment dashboard and you actually change somebody's life because that was the one person that one day that was able to find a different way to be able to live. So, um I think that giving is an opportunity for all of us to be able to take that leap of faith and be able to do things regardless of what's going inside our mind and, you know, the things that we that we've been told in the past or just uh, you know, been um imprinted on us at an early age and be able to change who we are. I think that's right. I think that's
0: absolutely right. This idea of venture philanthropy is one that gets bandied about a little bit more. And, and I think that kind of speaks to it of being willing to take the risk, not just give to the same old thing. And and actually I'd be interested in if you're seeing this as well, particularly among younger donors, they want to see, I mean, millennials, Gen Gen Z donors, they want to see impact, but they are willing to take those risks. Are you seeing some of that as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's becoming more and more apparent that, um, you know, everybody wants to see direct impact and they want to see, how their dollars are being used, they want to see. Uh, and, and, you know, through the, the venture cycle, it's like, you know, a return on investment. Like actually it's like, oh my God, like I actually gave money and it actually helped to like spur this whole development of a something that's like the butterfly effect. You know, one good thing happening, you know, it's, you know unintentionally happening, that's benefiting others.
0: So one topic that we care a lot about at Donors Trust is the idea of donor intent. It's really bedrock to us this idea of ensuring that the donor intent gets preserved, that what the donor really cares about is how their dollars get used. What advice do you have for donors worried about that idea, that donor intent idea, that their charitable dollars are going to go astray over time?
1: Well, like I said at the beginning, like my my thought is like the way that you give is through intentional acts of kindness. So these are, it's not random. And uh, you know, with regards to donor intent, uh, organizations that have failed their donors by not listening to what their request and intention has been are organizations that end up failing because they lose trust and they lose, uh, you know, they lose their donor base if they start doing that. And the nice thing about the donor advised fund world is that um, it's a structure that allows donors to have control over what their giving is under the structure, under the legal structure of um, you know the U- us you could say IR- IRS codes that pr- protect the donors and organizations that are really there to just be the conduit for donor intent
0: Well, thank you for that about thinking about donor intent it's a it's a big deal it's one I don't think it's enough airplay and, uh, and it's good to have people like you in the financial world and, and these advisors, these trusted advisors who can help people think it through it's something we try to do as well so getting any kind of last word parting word you want to leave with the audience as they think about how to continue to be more strategic in their giving
1: well i think that we can close it out just by saying you know if you are feeling motivated you should give and if you're feeling a little bit reluctant you should still give Because it feels good, and that's why I'm here, is just to help to inspire you to basically help to make this world a better place, and also to make you a happier person.
0: Well, the book is Giving by Gideon Bernstein. It is an excellent, good primer for people just getting going, and I think people who have been giving for a while, and just giving them a sense of the different assets and the different ideas that are out there that will allow you to uh, give and give more and give more generously over the long term. So Gideon, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Peter. Gideon described his book as a handbook for happiness because he focuses in on that great tool that makes so many of us happy. And that is giving charitably. I really highly recommend the book. I think as you heard him here today, being full of wisdom and full of ideas on, on how to leverage, The tools, the assets, the the options and flexibility that's out there for our giving to be able to get back to the purpose and to the happiness that really drives it all. Uh, I think it's it's so important to think about it that way, to remember that the purpose is what's at the root of it, uh, and there's a lot of different ways to get there, and we can find those ways, but we can really change the world in the process. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Gideon. If you'd like to learn more about Gideon and the book, you can go to thejoysofgiving.com. That's the website for the book and for Gideon, and there's lots of additional information to be found there. And speaking of giving, I would love for you to give me something, and that's a little bit of feedback. As I announced in the last episode, we have a survey going on at org slash podcast survey. I would love for you to donate uh, three minutes of your time. To me, to take that survey and give me a little bit of feedback so that my team and I can figure out how to make this podcast more valuable for you and give you the information that you're really interested in so that we can continue to bring you content that'll help you grow your giving, which is exactly the point. You can also rate the podcast, subscribe to it, or just send me an email and let me know what you think. I'm always happy to have it. Tell me more at donorstrust.org. And we look forward to being back with another exciting guest or three in the very near future. And until then, until then, keep on giving and let's talk more soon.